Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboard and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Jace Lingdon, the Gray Center's Research Director. Joining me today is Adam White, Co-Executive Director of the Center. Hi, Adam. Hey, Jace. Good to be back. And today we're also happy to have with us Ronald A. Cass. Ron is a dear friend of the Gray Center, a distinguished senior fellow here, Dean Emeritus of the Boston University School of Law, and President of Cass and Associates, among his many other professional accomplishments in stints of public service. He joins us today to talk about two recent papers. First, Fixing Deference, Delegation, Discretion, and Deference Under Separated Powers, which you can find online in the NYU Journal of Law and Liberty. And second, Getting Deference Right, published by National Affairs. You can find both pieces by clicking the links in our show notes. Ron, welcome back to Gray Matters. Glad to be here. Ron, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, you know, I, I often point out you've done more at the center than probably anybody else over the course of our history. At some point, we're going to rename the center the Seaboyd and Gray Center for Ron Cass's study of the administrative state. Uh, or the study of Ron Cass's administrative state. I haven't figured out which one yet. Um, either, either name really works well for me. Thanks, Ron. Well, I'll tell you, the papers that we're talking about here, um, in a way, I joke about Ron Cass's administrative state, that they are sort of an argument for a different kind of administration, not totally um, deconstructing and reconstructing everything, but but certainly making some changes to, to bring administration back towards the, the Constitution's ideal. And so maybe the best way to jump in is just to ask you very, very broadly, what's the argument you're making in these two latest papers on fixing deference? Well, the, the argument really centers on what it is that the Constitution sets up and how we can align what we're doing with that. The Constitution sets out a system where you have separated powers and you have a limitation on the scope of each power. Now, those are very important to the framers of the Constitution because they worried a lot about liberty, and they wanted a, a government that worked, but that didn't interfere overly with liberty. The two big arguments here are, first, that in order to move back in the direction that the Constitution sets out, we have to be very careful not to hand out too much power to anybody. And we also have to be careful that we hand it out in the ways the Constitution says. So that means that the Congress makes the law. They make the big decisions on the big questions. They make the decisions on things that affect the rights of private citizens. Uh, the second thing that happens is that the executive branch implements whatever Congress gives it to do. It's not a self-starter in most cases, although there are a few exceptions to that. But it, it's handed authority from Congress, and it stays within that authority. The third is that the, the courts tell us what the law is. They tell us what the law means. That's their function. They're really interpreting the law. The executive branch implements the law, but the, the courts are the ones who are charged with interpreting the law, and they're insulated against politics. Not, not completely, not totally. If you read the newspapers, not at all, but really, uh, in many important ways, they're insulated from politics. 
They tell you what the law means. The executive branch gets to put it into effect. If you keep that in mind, a lot of things that courts have said over the last 40 years don't seem to make a lot of sense. The courts don't mean everything they said, but they mean some of it, and they confuse other courts when they say it. That's the story I talk about in these two papers. And speaking of the last 40 years, you're writing these papers at a great time. Everyone seems to be talking about Chevron deference these days. And just last week, the Supreme Court heard oral argument in two cases challenging Chevron deference. What did you make of the oral argument? Did you find any justices sympathetic with your framing of the issues? Well, I, I, I was actually at the arguments and got to hear them live uh, in person. Uh, it was interesting. The, the arguments for changing or doing away with Chevron deference were made pretty forcefully by two uh, longtime Supreme Court advocates, one of whom has argued, I think, more cases than almost anybody in the history of the court. Uh, and, and they really said that the, the basic proposition of Chevron, which is often framed as giving deference to agencies' interpretation of the law, is simply incompatible with both the constitutional framework and the statutory framework that governs and produces a lot of mischief. And they push those arguments fairly forcefully. The Solicitor General uh, really pressed a number of different arguments, uh, saying basically that, that Chevron is the law, has been the law, uh, ought to be respected uh, just by virtue of its precedence. Uh, it, they also made, uh, or she also made the argument that the agencies are the right place to have a lot of issues of legal interpretation decided because agencies know more and are better at it when you're dealing with complex matters. And and finally, she said that if you don't allow that to happen, you'll have inconsistent interpretations of law because the courts in each different circuit will come up with their own interpretation. The interpretations won't always be the same, and that will be confusing to the public as well as to uh, businesses that have to deal with the law. Um, she said particularly, and, and one phrase she kept going back to, is that at some point law runs out and then you need to, to have decisions made. Justice Alito several times came back uh, and asked her the same question repeatedly about that. Why is it, he said, that you think law runs out, if we don't have an agency involved, law never runs out. We make a decision on what law means. It may be difficult. There may be hard questions there. But the law simply doesn't run out. Um, and uh, the Solicitor General uh, simply, uh, I thought, liked that expression too much to give up on it, but didn't have a real answer to uh, what the difference was when there was an agency from a, a regular statement of law. Uh, there also were points made by Justices Kavanaugh and Gorsuch that really engaged pretty directly the arguments made 
by the Solicitor General. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh talked about the lack of clarity and consistency, picked up the point she made there and said, really, the problem is that if you have Chevron deference, every time you get a new administration, you get a change in the meaning of the law. And isn't that really, uh, his point was, isn't that really the bigger problem of clarity and consistency? And Justice Gorsuch pressed hard on the point of the unfairness of Chevron because it allows decisions on the meaning of law to be made by bureaucrats and ordinary people don't have a lot of control over them. Big businesses have some uh, ability to affect what government officials say. They have certainly a lot of ability to adjust to what government officials say. But uh, Justice Gorsuch said neither one of those really holds for ordinary people. And, And from his standpoint, those problems trace to Chevron. One more uh, comment on the argument. Justice Kagan repeatedly came back to a problem she had with doing away with Chevron. And her problem is that you have difficult questions, technical questions of the application of law that agencies dealing with this day in and day out are simply better equipped to deal with. Um, And I I have my own argument with the way she framed it, but her point was that a lot of questions that come to courts out of agencies really are technical questions about the application of complex statutory schemes. Ron, let me ask you about the the phrase, uh, the law runs out. You, I mean, it wasn't just the Solicitor General that was using it. Justice Kagan circled back to it quite often. Um, You've been, you've been one of the leading scholars of administrative law now for decades. You were dean of the Boston University Law School. You've been in the middle of these debates um, in academia and, and around government now for decades. I'm curious what's your sense of where that line of argument come, or not even line of argument, that sort of framing of it as law com- law runs out. Where does that come from? What does that say about one's sense of administrative law and law generally, that sometimes the law runs out and the job of the agency is to specify um, what the what what the law actually is when other forms of law run out. I I think I know what Kagan meant by it, but I, I was just struck by how often they return to that phrase. It clearly means something very salient, um, and it's I'm I'm just interested in its prevalence at the oral argument. What that tells us about the broader sort of theories and arguments about administrative law for the last you know many many years. One of the it was an odd phrase to use because. But normally, what you think about is the law gives you direction. Certainly, when Congress writes a law, it tells the agencies what they can do. Uh, the agencies then are obliged to conform to the law. And I think the, the real thrust of the argument here is that if you think of it as the law having run out, then you can say it's no longer the province of the courts to give the answer. If the law runs out, it's somebody else's responsibility, in this case, the agency's 
responsibility to give the answer. It, it's not a concept that doesn't make sense, but it only makes sense in a certain way. And, and here's my take on, on the way it makes sense. It makes sense to say that there are times when Congress doesn't specify what actually ought to happen. It gives a broad direction, but not specific answers on the details of the application of the law. The problem is that since it's up to Congress to make the law, if it doesn't give enough direction, it hasn't done its job. When it hasn't done its job, if it hands over, it says, look, solve this problem. We have a lot of communications in America. Come up with a system of how to deal with it. And it just hands that instruction over to the Federal Communications Commission, um, which is renamed now the Federal Write the Law on Communications Commission. Congress has violated part of its constitutional obligation to make the law. It can't, the, the Constitution is very clear and the framers of it were very clear that Congress can't give the lawmaking authority to somebody else. And the, the philosophers and writers who influenced the framers of the Constitution, in particular Locke on this issue, uh, was very clear that the Parliament, the Congress, the lawmaking authority can't simply choose to give somebody else that authority, make somebody else the law. This is a hard question. I want John to do this one today. I don't feel like dealing with it. Now, you know, at home, it works. My wife, if she comes up to something she doesn't want to do, she can give that to me. I don't have the authority to do the same and, and give it to her. Congress doesn't have the authority to give the lawmaking power to anybody else. What Congress does have the authority to do is to say, we're going to make the law we're going to come up with a framework that answers the important questions. And then we're going to give the, the responsibility for implementing this to the president or to an agency to deal with. And inevitably, that will give the president of the agency a bunch of questions to answer and how to implement it. Because Congress won't write every detail out. But saying that you're giving it some questions to answer in implementing the law doesn't mean it gets to write the rest of the law. So I, I think coming back to where we started with this, when Justice Kagan or Solicitor General Prelegar talks about the law running out, what they really are talking about is a point where the law has given somebody else responsibility to make a decision. That's not the question, though that the plaintiffs in those two cases, in Relentless and Looper Bright, were bringing to the court. They were saying, our question is, does the law answer this question? Who pays to have somebody on a boat that's monitoring what the people on the boat are doing? Yeah. To answer that question, does the law give you an answer to that? You have to look at the law. And the, the, if the law has an answer to it, that's up to the courts to decide. That was the argument pressed 
by the uh, two lawyers for the, the plaintiffs in these cases, the, the argument that the government was making is even if it's a question of law, it can be for the agency to, to decide, and framing it as the law running out was a way of trying to blunt the argument that that can't be done consistently with the Constitution. In your article, the fixing deference one does a great job putting the deference debates in the context of delegation and that granting of discretion to the agencies. It didn't seem like any of the justices considered the fact that if the law runs out, to use their phrase, that Congress has something more to do. Is How do you draw the line between when the court can then supply an answer rather than relying on the agency, or we must turn it back to Congress, and how would that work? If, if Congress hasn't done its job of saying, here's the answer to the important question, here's what has to be done, and giving an instruction to the agency then to do something that isn't answering very big policy questions, you can answer policy question, but they can't be really big ones. They can't be big ones that affect private rights. But everything that is done by somebody implementing the law has to answer some questions. Uh, let me turn the, the clock back to when we uh, were setting up the government. One of the things that was argued about uh, at the beginning was where are we going to put the capital? And this was a matter of argument because travel uh, was difficult, communications were difficult, the cell phones didn't work at all back in the, in the 1700s. Um, uh, it's a problem I still have occasionally, but uh, they work a lot better today than they did in the 1700s. Communication was difficult, transportation was difficult. Uh, where you put the government uh, was going to make a big difference to who influenced it, because the people who were close by had a real advantage back then. So there were lots of arguments about this. They finally decided that there was this wonderful swampy spot that, if you put it there, um, would give rise to all sorts of uh, later conversations about things happening in the swamp. And so they they set Congress set out. They passed a law called the Residence Act that said we're going to have a government seat of government uh, out of territory that was supposed to be ceded by both Virginia and Maryland. And Virginia looked at this and said, "Now we'll hang on to ours. You you take it. Uh, we'll we'll put this in in territory ceded from Maryland." And it it laid out generally where it was going to be, and then set up a commission to pin down the exact details. The size of the government was set by both the Constitution and the Residence Act. The size of the, the capital uh, was set by that. The location was generally set by that. And then they said to the commission, map it out. You're on your own mapping it out and set up whatever buildings you need. And there were no instructions, none, on what sort of buildings, how many, what type. All those decisions had to be made by the commission. Nobody thought at the time that the failure to specify how many buildings 
what streets they'd be located on, what exact coordinates there were for Washington, D.C. Nobody thought that was a problem. The part that was politically sensitive, that was politically salient, that was difficult to answer and important, was already answered by Congress. So what the government did in the beginning fit well the structure of the Congress making the law, answering the big questions, and then turning it over to somebody else to implement. A lot of the argument that we saw last week in court was argument that was trying to frame those dividing lines in different ways. Deference is a way of saying, at some point, we're going to say somebody else, not whoever's making the decision now, and usually this comes up in court, somebody else gets to give the answer to that. In my argument, uh, article on fixing deference, what I'm saying is, look, once you've gotten past the part where Congress has made the law, where it's answered the big questions, saying what the law means is up to the courts. The executive branch gets to implement it, and to the extent it's given open ground, it gets to make the policy decisions on how to implement the law. But you can't think of that as answering what the law means. That's still in the courts. They can't violate the law. They'll look at trying to figure out what the law means. But the agencies aren't responsible for saying what the law is. They're responsible for putting it into effect. So map that onto the Chevron decision itself. Is that what the court did in Chevron and the court just mistake, you know, used the term interpretive or interpretation and and the term deference in ways that confuse things? Or did the court do the wrong thing all from the ground up? I, I think the court didn't do the wrong thing. It just said it sometimes, not all the time, the wrong way. The Chevron decision. Uh, didn't have any dissents, and it didn't generate any controversy. Uh, it's about a 27-page decision in the uh, U.S. reports. 25 pages of that are dealing with, was the policy at issue there uh, one that the agency could legally adopt, and could it adopt it with respect to the provision at issue? Uh, the the agency, the Environmental Protection Agency, was dealing with the question of how to regulate the emissions from certain plants or certain places. And the particular provision dealt with statutory sources, the regulation of emissions from, from, from excuse me, stationary sources. And the, that phrase is used in different times in environmental legislation. And three different uses of that same phrase uh, were uses that the Environmental Protection Agency looked at and said, we want not to regulate smokestack by smokestack, but place by place. 
And that was referred to as the bubble concept because the thought was if you put a bubble over, a plastic bubble over a set of smokestacks in a plant, and there was only one hole at the top emitting pollution up into the atmosphere, if you regulated the plant as a whole so that maybe one smokestack emitted a little more you had to offset that by one emitting a little less, and they'd be regulated as a group. Well, the EPA thought that made a lot of sense because it let the people operating the plant make efficient trade-offs in a way that reduced pollution without being excessively costly. So you'd get more buy-in from the people operating the plant. You could do it in a more effective way. You'd spend less money bringing about the pollution reduction. Everybody's better off. Three different times they tried that. The first time, the Court of Appeals for uh, the D.C. Circuit said you can't do that. The second time, the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit said, well, you couldn't do it there, but you can do it under the second provision. Not the first provision, but the second provision. The third provision that came up is the one that became the Chevron case. It was, and, and basically what the court said there is that you can do it under some circumstances, not under other circumstances. The law the, that is at issue doesn't give the EPA the authority to do it in every case where the term stationary source is used, but it does give it the opportunity to do it in some cases. So in Chevron, the court was interpreting the law, but it said the law in some parts of it gave the agency the option of choosing how it wanted to regulate. That was the right thing to do. It made sense. It simply said it the wrong way some of the times in the opinion, and some of the times that other courts were implementing the instruction from the Chevron case. They got it right, and sometimes they got it wrong. And my argument is the reason why they tended to get it wrong was they didn't have the right language. They didn't have language that said, we're going to defer to the implementation of the law. They were talking about deferring to the interpretation of the law. They they, They didn't mean that. They shouldn't have meant that. You don't want to defer to somebody whose authority isn't to say what the law is. You, the court, say what the law is. You don't defer to them. And the court really didn't mean, in the Chevron case, to defer on the law. All the conversation, in that opinion, was about this being a decision on policy, that they weren't, the court wasn't the right person, right entity, to say what the policy was. That was the agencies. Uh, that was the place of the agencies, not of the courts. Referring to interpretation was yeah. simply wrong. There's the footnote in the opinion where they say, just to be clear here, the court remains responsible for interpreting the law. Uh, maybe if the court had put that in the body of the opinion and much of the body of the opinion down in a footnote, this all would have been uh, clearer for you. Well, it, it might have, but it's not clear that the court knew quite how to say it. Yeah. The footnote you're talking about, footnote 9, yeah. uh, is, is famous because it says 
the courts make the decision on what the law is using traditional terms, traditional tools right. of statutory construction. Yeah. They put that in the footnote because as they were talking about the draft opinion, somebody said, wait a minute, are we really saying that we're going to defer to uh, an agency on this? And Justice Stevens wrote, oh, of course not, we're not saying that. Right. Um, but then he has another footnote, two footnotes later, that seems to, to take it all back. You know, it's, and they didn't have the right set of terms to say this the right way. But the fact that there was no dissent, the fact that people thought they were actually doing what the statutes told them to do, um, and the fact that there wasn't a real controversy about this for a while tells you that they thought they were not doing what it is that a lot of people took Chevron to do, and that is saying defer to the agency on the interpretation of the law. And that brings up Justice Jackson's concern that getting rid of deference to agencies would make courts the policymaker. In your Getting Deference Right article, you put it in terms of Congress saying that they could use one, either the bubble concept or the smokestack concept, depending on whether the goal was maintaining pollution control or reducing pollution. Is that right? Is Congress making that important choice using those terms, or is that the way you're thinking about it? Well, the, I, I think the—I'm going to say this in two pieces. I think the right way to think about it is to think of this as Congress saying, here's what the agency has to do, and saying that we're going to leave some parts of how you do that to the agency. Those are the policy decisions. If, if the policy decisions are too big, then that's a lawmaking issue. But the question of what the law says is a judicial interpretation issue. Imagine that the way Congress wrote the law is we want to reduce pollution. We want to reduce it significantly. We don't want certain types of pollution to harm people's health. And what we want to do is to use the law in this way by controlling these activities. Now we're going to turn it over to the Environmental Protection Agency and say, in doing that, in regulating these activities, in controlling this type of pollution, you've got an option. You can do it by choosing A, B, or C as your way of implementing it. Now make those choices. If that's the way the law is written, then it's clear. The implementation policy decision is you can choose a smokestack approach or a bubble approach. You can do it on the basis of one chimney in one furnace, or you can do it on the basis of chimneys in all the furnaces in one building, or all the chimneys in all the furnaces in all the buildings that are co-located around one plant. Now you figure out what works best. If it's written that way, it makes it clear what the agency does as opposed to what the Congress does as opposed to what the courts do.
And we've gotten so bollocked up with the term defer deferring to the agency. You don't defer to the agency on what you're in charge of. You defer to the agency on what it's in charge of, but you're not really deferring. What you're doing is looking at that only for the question in your domain, in your, the court's domain, which if it's something the agency gets to do, the court says, is it reasonable or not? But if it's a question of what the law means, the court answers that question. I thought you wrote that really well. There's a part in Fixing Deference where you said there's no provision in Article 1 that says the powers given to Congress and expressly restricted to a particular process for their exercise can be exercised by some other group or person whenever a majority finds such an arrangement advantageous. But is there a way to reconcile the status quo, which completely ignores that, um, with the rule of law, which is another thing you've written about? Well, I, I think that the answer to that is both yes and no. Um, it's yes and no because as a lawyer, I'm supposed to give the answer yes and no to everything. Otherwise, it makes it too simple and everybody can understand, and then you don't need lawyers. Um, and, and particularly as a law professor, which I, I was for a long time, um, you have to not only give confusing answers, but you have to follow it with a question that you want your law students to answer because that makes them think. The, the reason why I say it's yes and no is that, by and large, Congress has written statutes that do give answers to how it wants things to be regulated. Uh, some of these statutes go on for hundreds, even thousands of pages. But no matter how carefully you want to regulate things, there are always questions that have to be answered. Um, look at coining money. One of the things Congress is responsible for is coining money. But Congress isn't going to actually do the coining, nor are they going to say, how many molds you need of exactly what size, exactly what alloys are used, in exactly what combinations to make the coins. It's going to say, Here, here's, here's the coins we're going to have. It's going to say, uh, here's how much we're going to allocate to come up with in money. And, and it's going to give somebody else the job of actually doing the production of the coins. Doing that requires a lot of different decisions. Some of those decisions have a big impact on what it's going to cost to do the job and what you'll produce at the other end of it. Any job is like that. But the second part of it isn't making law. The same thing with respect to regulating the conduct of individuals. If we say we want people not to produce pollution of a certain type. That's making a law. You've got to figure out how much you want to reduce pollution of what sorts, in what settings, by what individuals or, or entities. Once you've done that, you don't have to say, here's every detail of what needs to be decided. So a lot of the structure of government that we have is broadly consistent 
with what the Constitution says. But there are some instances where Congress hasn't specified as much as it needs to what the agency needs to do, or where an agency is claiming authority under the law to make decisions. And those decisions are broader than they they really can be consistent with having the law made by Congress. And so we couldn't quite follow Justice Kagan and say, Congress, create an agency or someone to regulate AI. They'd have to say, look at these Silicon Valley companies, make sure whatever AI programs that are coming out are consistent with protecting civil rights or something like that. Well, when she used the the, uh, uh, agency to regulate AI, there being a law to regulate AI, I, I thought that the computer would simply write the law itself. We're talking about AI, you know, have at it, really believe in it. But I I think that Justice Kagan was emphasizing the importance of agency expertise uh, very, very frequently in dealing with complex frameworks for regulating a lot of different activities. But the fact that the agency knows a lot about regulation and how it works and what it will do doesn't mean the agency is telling you what the law means. It's telling you how it thinks it can implement the law in the best possible way. But Justice Alito is right when he says, we don't sit here as a court and say, well, the law has run out, we're just going to throw our hands up and say somebody else figure it out. The court answers the question what the law is. But the law doesn't always say everything you need to know to actually get something done. Uh, An example that I look back to frequently, and one I talk about in in both uh, articles that, that you were kind enough to mention, is the FCC's, the Federal Communications Commission's, regulation of broadcast. The FCC started life as the Federal Radio Commission in 1927, and it was given the responsibility for dividing up the radio spectrum and licensing people to use pieces of it in ways that wouldn't interfere. Back when radio was starting, a lot of different stations went on the air all at once. They each set what frequency they were going to use, how much they were going to, how much power they were going to use, what the what what the radius would be of their signal, who they'd reach, when and where. And there was a lot of interference with different signals. So what the Federal Radio Commission was supposed to do was to hand out licenses in ways that would minimize the interference let people communicate better, and put stations where they made sense in terms of how much of the public you would read. You don't want 17 stations out somewhere where there are 17 people and one station where there are a million people. You want the stations to be allocated in a way that makes sense. So what Congress did was it wrote a law said a lot of things about what needed to be done, and said 
to the Federal Radio Commission now allocate stations in the public interest, convenience. You know, it, it wasn't a precise set of instructions, but it was instructions that under the circumstances in that context said what needed to be said to get this started. Later on, the uh, by then the Federal Communications Commission said, you know, this isn't that much fun. We don't want to just hand out licenses. We also want to regulate the entire business of radio and television broadcasting. So we're going to put ourselves into that business now. And the Supreme Court, having said uh, a few years earlier, we certainly aren't allowing people to do that. Then turned around and said, "Yeah, okay. We now we are allowing people to do that." And um, there was a, a dissent in that case that said, uh, "Allowing the uh, Federal Communications Commission to do that on its own, without any instruction from Congress on what to do, uh, is a violation." of the principle that Congress can't delegate lawmaking. A majority of the court, led by Justice Frankfurter at that point, said, eh, we'll let it go. We'll let it pass. We kind of like this. Um, And we like having our friends in the agencies doing what we think they should be doing. So uh, we kind of slid off track. And some parts of the government, I think, would not be able to operate the way they do today uh, if we were functioning constitutionally. We'd have to have some laws redrafted. We'd have to have some uh, provisions given to the agencies uh, be more tightly constrained. But everything wouldn't come to a halt. You know, those who want government to go on as it is would be disappointed. And those who want it all to come to a halt would also be disappointed. Now, that FCC statute, the, the broad public interest and uh, convenience uh, language. And necessity. And necessity. That's, uh, that's the language that Justice Scalia so often pointed to when he expressed his wariness of a judicial non-delegation doctrine. He'd often say, you know, we've had statutes that are written so broadly, the FCC statute, and if that didn't violate the non-delegation doctrine, really nothing does. And that, in turn, becomes the premise of his own arguments for Chevron deference, most famously in the Duke Law Journal article in 1989, that uh, if we, I can't remember exactly how he put it, but something along the lines of, if if this era of government requires broad delegations of power as it's often thought to, and he sort of separates himself a bit from that premise, but he accepts it practically speaking. He says, well, in that case, then the best way for the courts to approach these broad, interpreting these broad delegations of power is with a framework like Chevron deference. That's a clear framework, a background principle that Congress can legislate in light of. Um, but, but going forward under Chevron, Congress and the courts and the agencies and the public all basically know 
their appropriate roles. And he, he liked Chevron because of its simplicity and also because he he didn't want, as you point out in the National Affairs article, uh, he and others didn't want the courts to continue to micromanage policymaking judgments and implementation uh, by the agencies. So that's just a long way of, of bringing you to, to, to your sense of what your friend Justice Scalia would say about these debates. A few years ago, you wrote an article for, I think, maybe the George Mason Law Review, titled Administrative Law in Nino's Wake. I have to admit, sometimes these arguments that we're hearing now, it feels a bit like uh, Nino in Administrative Law's wake, like Administrative Law is sailing on, maybe away from Justice Scalia. As as his longtime friend and uh, intellectual uh, sparring partner and intellectual uh, uh, compatriot, What's your sense of what Justice Scalia would make of these debates, um, and what how how can these debates be best enlightened by Justice Scalia's own insights? Well, it, uh, I, I very much appreciate the question. Uh, Nino was not only a, a great friend, but uh, very thoughtful about uh, a lot of these issues. Uh, one of the things that that is true of thoughtful people is that they keep thinking. And as they keep thinking, what they think about any proposition may not be identical uh, over time. Uh, When it comes to the non-delegation doctrine itself, um, there was a fellow named Professor Antonin Scalia, uh, who, uh, before he was Judge Antonin Scalia, was someone who uh, wrote a a piece about the importance of having the courts do something to police delegations to keep them from being too broad. And you know, said, Ron, I just got to jump in, by the way, as a as a in addition to my work at, eight, at the Gray Center, you know, I'm an AEI senior fellow. And so I'm obligated to say he wasn't just law professor uh, Scalia. He was also a think tank scholar, uh, Ali, uh, Scalia, when he wrote this article at AEI. OK, but now, now I've done my job. Go ahead. Yeah. He, he, was, he was not only think tank scholar, he was also the editor of Regulation magazine where he wrote the piece. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, he. Uh, he, he said when he when he wrote that, he, he said that without having the courts jump in, even though non-delegation is, is a lousy doctrine, it's got a lot of problems. It's very difficult to say what constitutes the, the law that Congress has to make itself. Um, said even so, we need courts to jump in or you can't really enforce the Constitution. And that was an argument made by Chief Justice John Marshall uh, back in the, in the 1820s when he wrote uh, you know, Wayman Against Souther, which is probably the classic uh, statement of what the uh, non-delegation doctrine ought to be. Uh, it, it's what uh, Hamilton said when he wrote uh, Federalist 78, which makes the argument that's the uh, sort of a bottom line for what we see emerging as Marbury against Madison uh, in favor of judicial review and the courts saying when Congress has violated the Constitution. And I, I think they were all right in saying you need some sort of a doctrine that's judicially enforceable. Judge Scalia um, became somewhat more enamored of having courts stay out of some of these 
arguments. And Justice Scalia had, both in the Duke article and in, in several of his opinions, um, a, a very cogent way of saying, look, we have to be worried not just about agencies running a bot, but about courts running a bot. And at that point, he had seen enough of uh, colleagues on the courts to, to be worried about that. As we go forward from that, though, for the rest of his time on the Supreme Court, he became increasingly more willing to tell agencies what the law was. When you look at Chevron's two steps, first, is there a clear meaning of the law? And then, if not, um, is there something that agencies can do that doesn't violate the law, but within the agency's domain and is reasonable. Justice Scalia was the judge on the Supreme Court who was most willing to say, no, no, I'm going to tell you what the law is. Listen to me. I know how to read the law. That's what I do. You do what you have to do after I'm done. Um, so I, I think that it's, it's fair to say uh, not only that uh, by the end of his time on the bench, he was more comfortable with being quite clear in having courts say what the law is and not deferring to agencies on what the law meant, uh, but in giving agencies a relatively small ambit of uh, territory within which they could operate. At the same time, once they were within the territory, he wasn't going to tell them what to do. But, yeah. but he was, uh, of all the justices on the court, the one who was most likely to say that the law does have a clear meaning and to give people his answer to what that meaning was. And you can see that both in his opinions and in what he wrote off the court. You know, his books that tell you, here are the canons of construction. Here's yeah. how we should think about this. Here are all the tools that courts have to answer these questions. Uh, he would be the last person to say, sorry, the law has run out. Law's run out, uh, yeah. So he, he, single, he would have he, given he, a different answer to, to the argument there. Yeah, he, he signaled that in his in that Duke Law Journal article, by the way. And also, I mean, that's, I guess, the crux of his opinion in, in his dissent in Brand X, which, uh, which again, got a lot of airtime at, at last week's oral arguments. Uh, Chase, I'll turn it back to you. Well, just piggybacking off of that, what do you make of the proposed narrowing of Brand X? I know they joked with Justice Thomas sitting there, who's written about overturning it, but it seemed like the Solicitor General thought it was okay to say that Brand X gives the agency space within that discretion to pick among those reasonable alternatives, even if a court has selected a different one. Is that how you took her argument? Well, I, I, first of all, I think Brand X uh, is another case where the, the court uh, is off track because it doesn't have clearly in mind the difference between interpreting the law and implementing the law. Um, what Justice Scalia said in Brand X is essentially, if the court is accepting a decision by an agency implementing the law, as consistent with the law. That's different from the court saying that 
we accept it because it is what the law means. It, you know, and, and the way that Brand X came about, you had a decision on the law, not in, as the law came out of the agency, but in an unrelated construct. So you had a court decision on the meaning of the law that the Supreme Court was telling the courts they had to sacrifice because the agency had spoken. It got it completely wrong. And and Justice Thomas is right in his Baldwin uh, statement to say, we got it wrong, we should go back and redo it. Uh, Justice Scalia was right in saying we need to distinguish between accepting an agency decision as consistent with the law and accepting an agency decision because uh, we're deferring to its decision on what the law means. Uh, so the, he distinguished between two different types of court decisions, ones a, a, a allowing the agency to get away with something because it didn't violate the law, and ones that said, here's what the law means. Those aren't the same. Uh, again, the language, though, matters. And the language of deferring to agency interpretations under some settings is simply wrong. It simply gets it wrong. And all of us fall into this trap of being captured by our language at some points. Even the smartest, the most knowledgeable, and the most well-grounded people um, do that. And I, I think Nino occasionally did that when he talked about Chevron, and other times didn't. And uh, you know, I, I, I can't talk about all of our conversations about this, because not all were on the record. Yeah. But I, I will say, I, I think it was obvious to people that over time, he became a, a fan of a different Chevron than some other people's versions of Chevron. You know, Ron, we should record a second episode where you tell all the really good stories, and then we'll make that that episode only available to paid subscribers. Um, but so much of this conversation, it reminds me of a conversation you and I had a few years ago at a coffee shop um, in Great Falls, um, talking about how everybody just throws around the term the rule of law, just throws it around. We all, everybody's for the rule of law. Who couldn't be? Who's against it? Um, but of course, then everybody means it, or people, lots of people mean it in very different ways. And that was an outgrowth of your own great book on the rule of law in America. It became um, the, the, the roots of a symposium that we did last year at the Gray Center on what the rule of law means in the modern administrative state. And so if there's any listeners uh, who haven't already seen this, I don't know how you couldn't have seen it if you're listening to this podcast, because we talk about it and advertise it all the time. But in case you missed it so far, this was in the New York, uh, the NYU Journal of Law and Liberty. Um, the contributors, it was such a great lineup. It was uh, Michael McConnell, Philip Hamburger, Lisa Heinzerling, Noah Rosenblum, but then, of course, also Ron Cass, who wrote the lead essay, uh, Delegation and the Administrative State, First Steps Towards Fixing Our Rule of Law Paradox. So I, I certainly encourage folks when this episode ends to, to check out that, episode, that issue of the NYU Journal of Law and, uh, and Liberty. Uh, Chase, uh, any closing thoughts? Well, I was going to ask Ron if he wanted to talk about that bit in the National Affairs article that didn't deal directly with Chevron, uh, but the other case, Overton Park, and 
many people have speculated that hard look review would be the next thing that people debate, depending on how Loper Bright comes out. Do you want to give us some parting thoughts about Overton Park? My, my uh, only thought on that is that uh, you have to worry about uh, courts delving into the decisions that are given to agencies the same way you have to worry about agencies delving into the decisions that are given to courts. And I think that if you have the right construct, if you have the right setup and you know what's in each box, you can get it straight. I think that both Chevron and Overton Park are cases where the court um, sometimes got pieces of it right, but sometimes got pieces of it wrong. Overton Park overall, I think, got wrong what it said it was doing, even though what it was really doing was interpreting the law which is in its domain. Um, in in Chevron, uh, the court probably got right what it was doing, which was accepting the reasonableness of a policy decision, even though a lot of the time it seemed to be talking about deferring to the the agency making the law, making it an interpretation of law. You know, it's funny, Ron, the, the justice who seems most sort of wary of modern hard look review might be Justice Kavanaugh, who in a opinion when he was still on the D.C. Circuit in a case called American Radio Relay League versus FCC, sort of offered some 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 concerns about, I think it was the Portland Cement Rule and other aspects of hard look review. And of course, at oral argument last week, uh, Justice now Justice Kavanaugh was one of the most sort of vocal critics of some of the ways that Chevron has has gone wrong. So maybe, maybe who knows, maybe Justice Kavanaugh will write the, a majority opinion re, uh, recalibrating Chevron, uh, and maybe someday he'll write an opinion recalibrating Portland Cement. But do you, Ron, have any, any predictions on, on how the, the Chevron cases are going to shake out? Um, I, I don't have predictions, but I'm thinking of an article called home looking and home cooking, um, because I, I think that uh, there are many ways that we ought to uh, look at agencies staying out of the kitchen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, coming soon to a Gray Center working paper near you. Thanks, Ron. Thank you. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter.